Even if we don't think that we are amazing, we like to think that we are at least slightly above average. Uh, this comes out when you take things like questionnaires or tests. I took a, I guess it's called a questionnaire, a, a test recently, and I wasn't thinking that I was amazing, but I figured I'd at least be, you know, above average. But when the, you know, you click through, you answer all the questions, and the results come back, and no, I'm just very average compared to everyone else who took the test. And really, I think that's true for a lot of us. Uh, we, well, if you're like me, sometimes you have this idea that maybe, hey, maybe you're above average, but generally speaking, we're, we're just not. Statistically speaking, you know, just statistics alone teach us that we're probably just average, uh, and that's okay. A lot of times that's what the Lord uses to, to keep us humble, to remind us that we should not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, and that's especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. There was a a survey done. They do it every year. Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries, they do a survey about the state of theology in America. And so the results from last year, one of the questions they asked has to do with this idea of how good people think they are. It, it asks this question, everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. Strongly disagree, somewhat disagree, don't know, somewhat agree, strongly agree. Right, so the question is asking, are, are people good by nature? That's what the question is asking. Well, 60%, of Americans agree with that statement, that people are good by nature. And 57% of evangelicals agree with that statement, that people are good by nature, born inherently good. And that just goes to show, really, that we live in a culture, and it's probably not unique to our, our culture, that we like to think we're better than, than we are, that we're naturally good, we're inherently good. But when we come to the Bible, what does God say, right? What does God tell us about reality? Well, the Bible teaches that not only do we make mistakes and sin, but that inherently we are sinful. That's our, our nature at our core. We're, we're born that way. It's a part of who we are starting out in life, right? And we see that especially in places like Romans 3. It talks about how there's none who does good. There's none who seeks after God. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's kind of a fundamental belief, really, about what human beings are like, what anthropology is like according to the Bible. And that's really a background for our passage this morning, that if we don't have that understanding, the things we're looking at this morning are, well, they might make sense, but they're not going to hit us as deeply as they will if we understand that truth that the Bible teaches. So this morning we are in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there and Read along with us this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 7. And the word of the Lord says this. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. May the Lord bless the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. And in these verses, so we've looked now at verses 3 through 6 in this section, really verses 3 through 14, we're seeing this plan of God for salvation throughout eternity, really. Eternity past, we looked at last week as we thought about election and predestination. Now we're in verses 7 through 10, and we see how God accomplishes salvation in time as Jesus comes and dies. And we're going to think about that redemption specifically this morning. So we're going to focus in really on verse 7 this morning and see how redemption highlights the lavish grace of God. The lavish riches of the grace of God are seen in redemption. And so redemption, as we see this deliverance from sin in these verses, we, we think about the word redemption, you could probably name at least one song that sings about redemption. Uh, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb redeemed, redeemed, his child and forever I am. There are many songs that sing about redemption. And we should sing songs about redemption. Redemption is really at the core of salvation. It's what it means that God paid the price for our sins. And that is at the heart, the very core of the good news of Jesus. But if we're going to look at a definition, that's probably a good place to start as we use the word redemption a lot. It's helpful to remember what the word actually means. Redemption carries this idea of being bought, of being freed. Of Really, it's a, it's a term of freeing a slave. Slavery to sin. That we all start as indebted to sin and God pays the price and buys us out of that sin and sets us free. So you can think about it like this in the Old Testament we remember that the, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And what does God say? He says, I'm going to redeem you. That's the word he uses, Exodus chapter 6. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to take you out of slavery and set you free. And so really, as we look at these verses, we remember the, the truth that all of us, either currently or in the past, were in slavery. That's really what this is teaching us. Every one of us, whether right now or in the past, are or were in slavery because we're not physically enslaved, although we shouldn't discount that. That still exists today. We just generally call it human trafficking and not slavery, but that still exists, but that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the spiritual reality of sin and enslaving us being enslaved to sin that regardless of who we are our backgrounds our our income our abilities 
none of it has any effect on whether or not we are starting out as slaves to sin. Because Jesus says in John chapter 8, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And that's not just talking about the really bad people. That's talking about everyone. Every single one of us is born as a, you could say, an habitual sinner. Every single human being starts that way. And it's not just those who do really bad or those who, you know, if you do, if you're uh, better in comparison to others or, you know, you do more socially acceptable things that makes you less of this. No, the Bible says that none of that can deliver us. None of that gets us out of slavery, right? This is our condition that we are enslaved to sin. We're not better than the next person next to us. We're all in this situation. This is where we start. And sin has the, the power over us because when we sin, we incur a Mic check, one, two. I'll just add it to the list this morning. Uh, but that's okay. So when we sin, we incur a debt that we cannot pay. You remember what the scripture says, that the wages of sin is death. That this is the punishment that we deserve for our sin. It doesn't matter how little the sin, how big the sin, all sin little or big, deserves this. So when we, well, when our tongues get sharp and we start poking holes in other people or saying things harshly about other people, that deserves death. When our desires are impure and we linger over lusts or we get envious of the situation that someone else is in, those internal desires that are wrong, those are deserving of death. That doesn't even mention the, the socially bad sins that we think of, like murder and things like that. The Bible says that if we have committed one sin, it's as though we are guilty of all of them, James chapter 2. And so it's good for us to remember this, that whether or not we are Christians, that we start out this way, that the debt of our sin stacks up. And it stacks up large. Even, even if we just have one sin, the debt that we incur is something we're unable to get out from under. And that's something that we have to live with. It's an infinite debt because we have sinned against an infinite God. And so we are unable to repay this price. And so here we are because of sin. We live on earth, still going about our daily lives. But really it's like we're on death row spiritually, right? That the sentence has already been cast, that this is the punishment that we will experience. We will die and be separated from God forever because of our sin, that this is where we're at. And so when we think about sin, really, we, we need to take it seriously, right? That this is something that it's we shouldn't have an attitude of, oh, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done this. I know I've 
I'm sure I've said this before, when someone apologizes to you or, you know, they feel bad, they start to feel conviction about something they've done and they come and apologize to you. And sometimes we have the tendency to say, what do we say? Oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, right? Well, as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, we probably shouldn't say that because that's just not the reality, right? That sin is something that is a big deal. And if someone is feeling the conviction, the weight of that, we shouldn't just brush it off and say, no, don't worry about it. That's not as big of a deal as you think it is. But instead, when we, when we hear that apology or when we apologize ourselves, really what we need to hear in that moment is not that, oh, it's not a big deal, but instead, what do we need to hear? We need to hear the gospel, the good news that, yes, it is a big deal, but Jesus has done what is needed to take care of that sin, to eliminate it. And so we got to think through how do, we, how do we say that? How do we communicate the gospel, point people towards that in those moments? But that really is what we need to hear when we feel the weight, and we need to feel the weight of our sin. When we feel it, that's where it should drive us. It shouldn't drive us to despair that there's no hope, but it should drive us to Jesus in the gospel because he is the only one that is able to cleanse us from sin, to cleanse our conscience from sin, to deliver us from the guilt of sin. And that's because he's the only one that can pay that price for sin. And that's what redemption is. So go back to this metaphor, right, of being on, on death row, that this is what our sin deserves. We're we're there because we deserve to be punished. But what does Jesus do? Right? He comes down from heaven. He comes to earth. He dies on the cross as a punishment for our sin. That someone has to die. That's the punishment that's been set forth. Sin deserves death. Someone has to die for sin. And it's either going to be you or it's going to be Jesus. And Jesus comes and he takes our place so that he's a substitute, that he takes that punishment. It's paid in full. And now when we trust in him, we can go free. We can go from being someone on death row who has no hope. There's, there's no hope of us escaping this. We're, we're truly in the wrong. We truly sinned against God. And this is our fate. And Jesus comes and he, he dies in our place and he opens the door, he takes the chains off, and we walk out a free man, a free woman. No longer having to worry about any of that guilt of sin coming back on us ever again because Jesus had paid for all of it. That's what redemption is, that Jesus pays it all. And that's what it means to really to believe in Jesus, that we believe he really does pay it all. He takes all of that on himself on the cross. And so we simply trust him that we will be forgiven because of what he has done, that he'll take all our guilt away. When we feel, feel the guilt of that sin that we've committed, that we come to Jesus and we realize that he takes that away. So that has two applications, really. One for us if we have never trusted the Lord, and then one for us as a Christian, if, if we've never trusted the Lord and we feel the guilt of our sin, well, that means we need to come to Jesus and be forgiven of it. That's the only way to escape. And if we're a Christian and we 
we know that Christians aren't sinless. We continue to sin. When we sin and we, again, we feel the, the sorrow, the feelings of guilt come upon us again, then we really, we do a lot of the same thing. We come to Jesus. We remember what he has done already for us, that he has promised that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that he has paid for it all. He has redeemed us and set us free from sin. And this, this is the good news of the cross. As we look at this passage, we think about redemption. This is the core of what we need as humans. Sin is our main issue, and redemption is the solution for that. And so we, we think about things that people need, right? We can look around and list things where we usually say that people need, like uh, food, clothing, a place to live, things like that. And we, we try to minister as best we can to those needs. But if we do not minister to this greatest need and and tell people this good news that Jesus offers redemption, forgiveness of sins, then really what we're doing is just making people a little more comfortable while they're on death row awaiting their final punishment of death. And so we must not just try to make people comfortable on the way to hell, but we must proclaim this gospel. There's a way to simply get up and walk out the door because Jesus has made a way for that to happen. And so that's our, our focus, our, our uh, main task as Christians, that God has given us this task of proclaiming this good news and making disciples, and we remember that, even as we try to serve in all these other ways in, in serving the community, loving the people around us, that Jesus redeems, and that gives us, really it gives us the the boldness to proclaim to people that there is a way to be free from sin. And when it comes down to it, this is the message of God's grace. In this passage, uh, really everything that's listed in verses 3 through 14 is about highlighting the grace of God, the riches of his grace. Verse 6, it talks about the will of God and his glorious grace, that it would be praised and so everything in these verses is really is like a, a telescope pointing us to the, the glory of God's grace so that we can see it more, so that it'll be magnified in our life and that we'll praise God for it. So whether that's election or redemption or inheritance or the sealing of the Spirit, all these things are really about praising the grace of God. Because we remember when it comes to redemption, Jesus didn't have to redeem us. Like, it's not our right to be redeemed. We are rightfully going to hell for our sin. Like, that is the just punishment of a just God to punish us for our sin. But it's clear that even though we didn't deserve this, that God, not because of what we've done, but at his very core, he is gracious. And so he comes, he sends his son, Jesus comes and dies on the cross for us. This is, this is the overflow of God's grace, that it's not because of us or what we need or deserve, that it's just because of him, that the grace is just simply overflowing out of him. He's got a richness of it. It's lavish. It's abundant grace. This is who he is in his goodness. Uh, you can think about it this way. Uh, there are a lot of rich people in the world, 
well, maybe not a lot, but there are, you know, the richest people in the world, they have a lot of money. And at some points, whether you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or any of the rich people, you just can't spend all your money. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but uh, let's say you have 500 million, 500 billion dollars. That's roughly how much the richest people have, supposedly. Uh, if you were to live for 50 years and you had $500 billion, do you know how much money you'd have to spend every single day to run out of that money? You'd have to spend $27 million a day to run through that money. That's a lot. You, you just, there comes a point where you just literally cannot spend all that money, right? You just, your riches are just overflowing. It makes you think, well, you know, I would love to just meet one of those people at one time and tell them about the the simple needs I have that they could easily help out with because <laughs> they've just got money and money and money, right? But that's just an incredible stat. But we think about that with the riches of God. We can think about the literal physical riches, right? God owns the universe. So he's not running short on any material wealth. But this is talking about the spiritual riches of God, his character, his, his grace, the riches of of his grace. God is an infinite God. That means his grace is infinite. It will not run out. That it just emanates from him all the time. That's who he is. It's always overflowing out of him. And the riches of God, when we come to know him, right? He, he forgives us. He lavishes that grace on us in forgiving us of our sin, grace that is greater than our sin. But then what happens? We're, as this passage talked about earlier, we're adopted into his family. We're, we're made the bride of Christ. We're in a relationship with God himself, in the presence of God. And so now we're in the presence of God, the God who just emanates grace and goodness from himself. It just overflows out of him. And we're always in his presence. And so that means that everything that we experience now as Christians is the goodness of God flowing out of himself to us because we're always in his presence. He's always being good. And so he's always lavishing this goodness, this grace upon us. It's flowing out of him. So this is why these, these great promises that we look at in, say, Romans 8, where it talks about if God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things, right? He's given his son. Will he not be good to us in every other way if he's already done the most important thing, the most, we would say, difficult thing of sending his son to die in our place? And Romans 8, 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So literally everything, that we experience as Christians, once we experience the redemption of God, everything is the goodness of God to us. It doesn't mean life is always easy or perfect. It's often not. It's often difficult. But even in those things, God is using those things for our good so that we might know him more and be more like him. And that really is the goodness of God. His goodness is always, always overflowing to us when we know him. Every single thing that happens in our life as a Christian 
is the goodness of God to us because we are in his presence. He is with us and he is a gracious God. And that's an amazing thing. It's no wonder that Paul starts this chapter, this book, by proclaiming the, the riches, the glory of God's grace. We remember it. We praise him for it, that everything that God is doing is his goodness so that we would be brought near through the blood of Christ and experience forgiveness of sins, the removal of our guilt, and the goodness of God in our life. And that is, that's good news. That is good news. That's what God offers to everyone. Come, be saved, receive forgiveness of sins. That's what he reminds us of in this idea of redemption. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we thank you that though we were sinners on death row awaiting eternal punishment, that you have, while we were still sinners, you died for us so that we could be forgiven of sins, that all the burden of our sin would be washed away. We pray that we will remember more and more the great burden that we had because of sin, and maybe we currently have it, that if we still have this burden of sin, that we have never experienced your forgiveness, that we have never been forgiven and accepted you as our Lord and Savior, we pray that you will do that in lives today, that people will see their need for salvation and that they will see your goodness in being Savior and Lord. Lord, we thank you for this. May you receive the praise and the glory, and may we remember the riches of your goodness and grace to us, that you would be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.